Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I'm your host for episode 17 on April 30th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guests are Krista Hagen, Megan Hamilton, and Teresa Pearson, who are the co-founders of the Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 16 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I am still waiting on a response from the RSS program that I use to publish the Air Medical Today news and information from Twitter onto the Facebook page. The issue has been that my posts are being grouped not only with other Air Medical Today posts, but other ones I do for the Eero Podcast Network. My issue is still posted on their help website as unresolved, so I'm hoping I will hear something very soon. As I said last week, I am in the meantime posting news and information directly to Facebook, as I do for Twitter, so there was no delay whatsoever. Just added steps for me. I did receive some feedback on episode 16 of my interview of Kevin Hutton. The listener said they enjoyed listening to Dr. Hutton and learning more about the history of the foundation. There is one correction from episode 16 that was passed on by Kevin. He had misspoken during the interview, as the Medevac Foundation International does have one patron donor, and that is the Association of Air Medical Services. I should have known that fact, too, as Ames funded the initial startup and operating expenses of the foundation. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file or note to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have any suggestions for future guests, as I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, to be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page, please just email or call me if it is not. I am trying to identify all Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. I did not add any new pages this week. I cannot link Facebook group pages, and therefore, if you are thinking of putting your program on Facebook, do use a fan page rather than a group. 
One of the most important reasons is that you can obtain a unique URL or website address once you have 25 fans. This makes it much easier to provide someone your Facebook page and for them to find you. Contact me if you have any questions about this. As I have mentioned, I am going to be rolling out a sponsorship program for the Air Medical Today podcast. I am looking for both corporate and individual sponsors, and a new page I have completed will be posted up on the AirMed Today website as soon as I have some statistics on the podcast downloads for this month. To continue with the news and information and podcasts, I will need financial support to do so. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. In healthcare reform news, House Republicans said they want to question one of the government's top healthcare actuaries over the long-term costs and overall expectations of the new healthcare reform law. In a letter sent to Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Henry Waxman, GOP leaders said they want Richard Foster, the chief actuary at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to testify about the future effects of the reform law. The letter was sent by Representative Joe Barton of Texas, the senior Republican on the committee, and it is signed by 23 other GOP members. The request comes about a week after Foster and the Office of the Actuary released a report where they predicted that overall health expenditures would increase over the next decade by $311 billion under the new reform law, even while a number of provisions meant to tamp down spending go into effect. That figure is $77 billion higher than the earlier estimate. An air ambulance taking off on a medical call nearly collided with a small training aircraft over the Ottawa-Canada airport earlier this month. The bright orange Sikorsky S-76 helicopter, part of the Orange Air Ambulance Fleet, departed on the south side of the main terminal around noon on Saturday, April 9th. It set a northwest heading to pick up a patient at Pembroke Hospital. At the same time, on the north side of the airport near the General Aviation Terminal, an Ottawa Flying Club Cessna 172M on a training flight was taking off heading southwest on an intersecting course. A preliminary Transport Canada report says both aircraft were operating on visual flight rules and that both the Cessna pilot and the Orange flight crew acknowledge having their respective traffic in sight. For some reason, however, as the Orange helicopter climbed out, it was forced to take evasive actions as both aircraft converged and nearly collided, said the Transport Canada occurrence report. The helicopter continued on to Pembroke. The report suggests Transport Canada is investigating the incident further. NAV Canada, which operates the airport's control tower, has already investigated the incident, and those findings have not been made public. Jennifer Tracy, spokeswoman for Oren, said the service is conducting its own investigation. No comment was available Sunday from the Ottawa Flying Club. The only crash in Orange's history occurred in February 2008 near where when one of its helicopters crashed short of a landing pad while responding to a snowmobile collision. The two-pilot flight crew and two paramedics survived. 
In March of this year, another orange helicopter clipped some overhead electric wires with its rotor as it was taking off from the scene of a Toronto highway crash. Two pilots and two paramedics aboard were not injured. Ontario's air ambulance program began in 1977 with a single helicopter at the Buttonville Airport near Toronto. Over the years, different regions established medical transport bases operating out of area hospitals. Today, Orange owns 11 Sikorsky S-76 helicopters and has access to more than 50 fixed-wing airplanes operating out of a number of air bases across Ontario. The Ottawa base opened in 1999. A laptop fell from a LifeLink 3 helicopter last Saturday, April 18th, and nearly hit a 10-year-old boy who was only inches away when it landed on the ground. The boy was spending some time at a family cookout Saturday night when the LifeLink 3 helicopter was leaving St. Cloud Hospital. Somehow, the crew left the laptop computer on the helicopter skid. The computer fell in the alley three blocks and across the Mississippi River from St. Cloud Hospital. Hospital officials said LifeLink 3 had just landed with a patient and was leaving the helipad when the crew's computer was left on the helicopter skid. Although the crew retrieved the computer, pieces of it still remain in the alley, and the boy's father said it is a sober reminder of what could have happened. St. Cloud Hospital is investigating the incident. The Federal Aviation Administration will also be looking into what happened. It is very lucky that this was not more serious and a good reminder to all of us about equipment checklists. The widow of a flight paramedic killed in a 2008 crash of a Maryland State Police helicopter has sued the federal government for $15 million, claiming that air traffic controller errors and inattention contributed to the death of paramedic Mickey Lippi. He was among four people killed in the crash as it attempted to deliver two teenage patients from a car accident in Waldorf in southern Maryland to Prince George's Hospital Center. Federal accident investigators have determined the probable cause of the crash was the pilot descending too quickly in an attempt to get out of deteriorating weather. The federal investigators said contributing to the crash were controller failures, including relaying hours-old weather information to the pilot and inadequately handling the flight before it crashed in District Heights, Maryland. The controllers were negligent, contends the lawsuit filed March 12th in U.S. District Court in Greenbelt, Maryland. The suit was also filed on behalf of two-year-old daughter of Mr. Lippi. The suit does not name the state of Maryland or state police for whom he worked. The federal government has about two months to respond to the filing. One patient on board survived the crash with severe injuries. Federal aviation regulators prodded airlines this week to take concrete steps that would ensure their pilots are not distracted by laptops, cell phones, and extraneous conversations. Spurred by a series of recent accidents and incidents in which pilots' attention was diverted from flying, the Federal Aviation Administration will issue a notice calling for better internal rules and training on the issue. 
Cockpit distractions and lack of professionalism have become top aviation safety issues in the past year. The FAA action follows recommendation by the NTSB to become more aggressive in attacking the problem. This past February, the NTSB classified the FAA's response to the issue as unacceptable because of the delays in acting. The NTSB made the first of several calls for tighter cockpit discipline in 2007. The NTSB will hold a three-day public forum on improving professionalism among pilots and air traffic controllers starting on May 18th. In its notice to airlines today, the FAA emphasized that carriers should take specific steps to eliminate cockpit distractions. The FAA's notice to airlines is voluntary, but failure to follow its suggestions can lead to additional inspections and scrutiny of records on safety efforts. The explosion in the use of cell phones and other personal electronic devices has had a troubling impact on aviation and other modes of transportation, NTSB has found. The co-pilot of the regional flight that crashed near Buffalo had used her phone to send text messages while the plane taxied toward the runway in Newark before the flight investigators found. The messages played no role in the accident, but investigators said they were part of a disturbing trend. It is unclear what the impact of a year-old air traffic safety action program set up by the Federal Aviation Administration to increase air traffic safety has been. The program allows air traffic controllers to report hazards and incidents in exchange for immunity, although immunity is not guaranteed in very serious incidents. The goal of the program is to encourage more honest accounts of incidents at runways so that the FAA can improve air traffic safety. Many of the reports made to the program have been minor, according to USA Today. Some of the incidents could have resulted in injury, however. More than 14,000 reports have been made since the program began, and approximately 45% of them involved aircraft flying too close to each other or on unapproved routes. Other items have included flying too fast on departure at certain airports, making dangerous runway crossings, and turning too close to other planes in the air. Although major plane crashes are relatively rare, any improvement to air traffic safety is regarded as a good thing. Changes made as a result of the FAA's program include improved signage at runway intersections and fixing computer software. In its annual review of Most Wanted Transportation Safety Improvements, the National Transportation Safety Board updated its list of items requiring rapid attention and added a new urgent concern as a result of the investigation into last year's Colgin air crash. The addition involves improvement in the oversight of pilot proficiency based on a pair of safety board's previous recommendations calling for the FAA to require Part 121 and 135 operators to obtain histories of the flight check-in failures by pilots seeking employment and to mandate special remedial training for pilots who have demonstrated performance deficiencies. While no items were removed from last year's list, three areas did show progress and were moved by the board from unacceptable to slowly progressing. 
The issue of runway safety, which has been on the list since its inception in 1990, has been upgraded to an acceptable response based largely on the FAA's current evaluation of several new technologies, including final approach occupancy signals, runway status lights, and improved airport lighting at airports around the country. The agency is also testing low-cost ground surveillance systems in four towers that currently do not have such systems. Another area where the board has seen recent progress is in its recommendation for changes in air traffic control procedures that would require specific clearances for aircraft across runways rather than relying on implied clearances, an improvement the NTS believes would reduce the chance of runway incursion. The FAA recently advised the Safety Board that it will be revising its air traffic control procedures to incorporate the recommendations. Last year, the NTSB conducted a four-day hearing in the aftermath of the deadliest year for the helicopter EMS industry. In 2008, there were eight fatal accidents that killed 29 people. The Safety Board added EMS flights to its most wanted list last year. While the board noted some improvements, the issue retained its overall unacceptable progress status on the list. The board applauded the new operations specification mandating that all VFR legs of EMS helicopter flights be conducted within stringent predefined altitude and weather minimums derived from pre-flight planning, which according to the FAA has achieved a 100% compliance rate among HEMS operators. The NTSB also found improvement in its request for industry-wide implementation of formalized flight following and dispatch after a May 2008 FAA advisory circular specified tasks that needed to be completed by the operator's operational control centers. According to the FAA survey last year, 89% of all HEMS operators at the time had operational control centers, a number that was expected to increase this year. But the NTSB found unacceptable the FAA's lack of progress on adapting Part 135 flight and duty time rules for the industry, flight risk evaluation protocols, and a TAWS mandate. A 2006 report by the board on HEMS crashes found that 17 of the 55 accidents cited could have been avoided with the use of terrain awareness systems. While the FAA has mandated the use of TAWS on turbine-powered aircraft with six or more passenger seats, it has not extended such regulations to EMS helicopters. The House approved a bill to extend aviation programs and excise taxes through July 3rd this week. The measure would give lawmakers more time to work out their differences on a multi-year FAA reauthorization bill. Unable to pass a multi-year FAA bill in the past two and a half years, lawmakers instead have approved a series of short-term extensions. The current extension expires at the end of April. Engineering companies in Colorado and Washington, D.C. have been awarded a $280 million contract for work on the new next-gen air traffic control system. The Federal Aviation Administration said Thursday that Flatiron Solutions of Boulder and CSSI of Washington will do engineering work on the new GPS-based air traffic control system. 
The $280 million contract is the first of up to six under the $7 billion program called Systems Engineering 2020. Distracting a pilot during taxi takeoff or landing could lead to a critical error, and apparently the same is true of nurses who prepare and administer medication to hospital patients. A new study published in the April 26th issue of Archives of Internal Medicine said that interrupting nurses while they're attending to patients' medication needs increases the chance of an error. As the number of distractions increases, so do the number of errors and the risk to patient safety. The study's lead author is Johanna Westbrook, director of the Health Informatics Research and Evaluation Unit at the University of Sydney in Australia. Four interruptions in the course of a single drug administration doubled the likelihood that the patient would experience a major mishap, according to the study. Experts say the study is the first to show a clear association between interruptions and medication errors. About one-third of harmful medication errors occurred during medication administration studies show. Prior to this study, there was little, if any, data on what role interruptions might have played. For the study, the researchers observed 98 nurses preparing and administrating 4,271 medication to 720 patients at two Sydney teaching hospitals from September 2006 through March 2008. Using handheld computers, the observers recorded nursing procedures during medication administration, details of the medication administered, and the number of interruptions experienced. The Alberta government in Canada has agreed to increase its annual funding to STARS as part of the deal that will see the Air Ambulance Society take on a new training role. STARS has long been funded through a combination of public and private dollars, and beginning this year, the province will up its contribution to the charitable group by $1.2 million, bringing its total annual investment to the group to $5.49 million. As part of the agreement, which is good for 10 years, STARS will take on the responsibility of training airborne medical teams across the province, including 12 fixed-wing air ambulance providers also contracted by the Alberta Health Services. Training for the specialized medical teams has been the responsibility of each provider. SARDS will now administer a consistent combination of computer-based training and in-class instruction, to all provincially contracted air ambulance providers, said Dr. Greg Powell, CEO of STARS. In the continuing story from Newfoundland, Labrador, Canada, protesters from Newfoundland's northern peninsula temporarily shut down the legislature this past Monday as they voice anger over a pending move of the air ambulance in St. Anthony to Happy Valley Goose Bay. Announcing the decision in March, Health Minister Jerome Kennedy said the transfer will provide better service to the people in Labrador. The Newfoundland and Labrador government has two air ambulances. Residents of the Northern Peninsula say the move will hurt the quality of health care in the region, and some leaders have described it as a political payback because voters in last fall's election in the Straits, Whites, Bay North area, elected a liberal candidate. The government has not yet announced a date for the switch. 
Although they remain hopeful, officials with the union representing employees of Advanced Paramedic in Peace River, Alberta, Canada, say the clock is ticking on coming up with a first contract. Scott Pattison, with Health Sciences Association of Alberta, says the owner of the air ambulance service, Stephen Woodburn, has a second complaint of bargaining in bad faith against him, which was filed with the Alberta Labor Relations Board. Since November of last year, Pattison said they have had six days of bargaining. American Eurocopter announced this week that the Cleveland Metro Life Flight Program has taken delivery of another EC-145 helicopter. This will be the third EC-145 in Metro Life Flight's fleet. Metro Aviation Incorporated, no relationship, did the completion work for the aircraft with the latest technology for wide area augmentation or WAS-capable IFR approaches, night vision capability, and a comprehensive avionics suite. Metro Aviation also provided all completion services, which included aircraft painting, interior appointments, avionics installation, air medical equipment integration, and final check rides. Metro Life Flight is one of the largest critical care transport programs in Ohio and part of the Metro Health System. All of the program's EC-145s feature the latest in aviation safety technology, including TAWS, satellite tracking, cockpit data and voice recording, XM satellite weather reporting, and Doppler weather radar. The crew will also begin night vision goggle training. It's been about eight months since a Lee County MedStar Eurocopter EC-145 slammed into the waters off of North Captiva, Florida. MedStar pilot Diana Tackett was en route to an emergency call on August 17, 2009, navigating her way to the island with two paramedics when the chopper crashed, flipping and submerging within five seconds. All three escaped, but the $5 million helicopter was damaged beyond repair. Since then, the MedStar program has been operating with a single helicopter, which is a BO-105. Between repairs to the BO-105 and its more limited capabilities, MedStar flights have dipped 36% since the crash. Administrators were slated to meet last Friday to discuss whether to replace the BO-105 with a newer model, in addition to replacing the lost EC-145, which is covered by a $5.4 million insurance policy after a $25,000 deductible. Diane Holm, Lee Emergency Medical Services spokesperson, said having two new helicopters of the same model would cut training time in half and allow repairs and maintenance to be scheduled with greater predictability, as the older helicopter often requires more work on short notice. For the first time, helicopters are landing at the new Mercy Medical Center Hospital in Merced, California, practicing for when the new hospital opens on May 2nd. MediFlight, based at the Merced Municipal Airport, practiced landings this past week. Before the new hospital, a patient who needed to be taken to Modesto or Fresno had to go by ambulance from the hospital to the airport to reach the helicopter. Staff, including security and 120 emergency room personnel at Mercy, were trained to work with MediFlight. Mercy's new hospital stands seven stories high and will hold more than 190 beds. 
The $260 million project has been under construction since 2007. LifeLight of New York is opening its newest helicopter base at the Hornell New York Airport. The base is scheduled to start operations this week and be staffed by an EMS pilot, flight nurse, and flight paramedic team. Air Methods Corporation currently operates five existing LifeNet of New York bases in Albany, Wallkill, Glen, Sydney, and Harris. They also are the air operator of the Guthrie Air Helicopter in Sayre, Pennsylvania. Over the next 18 months, residents of Copenhagen, Denmark, and the rest of Zealand will be served by a medical helicopter. Denmark's first emergency helicopter is preparing to take flight on May 1st in an 18-month trial scheme that will provide air-based medical help to the residents on Zealand. The helicopter will be based out of Ringstead and will service all of Zealand and the Capital Health region, with the exception of Bornholm. Insurance company foundation Tigfonten is covering the cost of the 50 million kroner scheme, which will be evaluated after 18 months to see if the government should invest in a permanent nationwide medical helicopter service. It is expected that the helicopter will be utilized for five or six flights a day. A new EC-145 air ambulance will be taking to the skies thanks to the generosity of donors across Hampshire, England. The Hampshire and Isle of Wight air ambulance has been flying for just under three years now, and its current BO-105 helicopter is to be replaced thanks to the donations from the public. The service receives no government or national lottery funding and only receives support through funding of the paramedics from the National Health Service. The BO-105 costs about £92,000 to run per month, and the EC-135, which will launch in September, will cost £130,000 per month. The Kirksville, Missouri Aerovac Life Team crew are in the process of completing training for night vision goggles. The training included classroom instruction and hands-on flight time as part of Aerovac's comprehensive FAA-approved NVG training program. The crew will be using Anvis 9 goggles manufactured by ITT Technologies, the same devices used by the U.S. military. The Kirksville base has been in operation since March 2004. Doctors, hospital personnel, and emergency responders were guests of honor at MedStar's belated 20th anniversary celebration this past Saturday at the Johnstown, Pennsylvania Heritage Discovery Center. Operated jointly by Conemouth Health System and Air Methods Corporation, MedStar Air Ambulance Service began operations in October 1989 at Memorial Medical Center. The original critical care flight team included nine nurses and three emergency medical technicians and paramedics. Pediatric nurses were added later for calls related to Memorial's intensive care nursery. The celebration last Saturday included many current and former MedStar flight team members. On October 13th, MedFlight's Morgan County, Ohio base celebrated its fifth anniversary of operation. The base was the sixth helicopter base established by MedFlight. In February 2005, MedFlight 6 started out at the Newton Township Fire Department until the completion of the current base at the Morgan County Airport. 
The critical care transport team of MedFlight 6 consists of a nurse, a medic, and a pilot. MedFlight is a not-for-profit air and ground critical care transportation company based in Columbus, Ohio, that completes nearly 7,000 critical care transports by helicopter and mobile intensive care units each year. Mineral Wells Airback Light Team hosted an anniversary ribbon-cutting and open house last Friday, April 23rd, at the base in Mineral Wells, Texas. The Mineral Wells Air Ambulance Service began helping patients in September 2003. The survival flight team from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor visited the Upper Peninsula of Michigan last weekend to introduce their fixed-wing jet to residents who may not know what it is or that it is an available resource. Dr. Brad Uren, a physician with survival flight, said a lot of folks just don't realize that this resource is available. The survival flight team will be back in the Upper Peninsula in September for a conference in Houghton. As a result of lower flight volumes and higher maintenance expenses, the Air Methods Corporation expects to report near break-even results for the first quarter 2010 net earnings. The company noted that these preliminary results are subject to final quarter-end closing and review procedures and therefore subject to change. The company will report final results for the first quarter ending March 31, 2010 after the close of the market on Thursday, May 6th. Reach Air Medical Services and Shasta Regional Medical Center in Redding, California, have collaborated to purchase an automatic external defibrillator for the West Valley High School in Cottonwood, California this week. The equipment purchase was made possible through funds raised from Reach's Drive for Kids golf tournament. Shasta Regional Medical Center will cover the cost of an alarm cabinet to store the device, training to the high school staff to use the defibrillator, and the physician oversight of the program. Midlands Air Ambulance, based at Strenham, England, will be featured in a new series for the Arts and Entertainment TV show. The show, being aired on May 5th, follows the helicopter crews as they deal with car crashes, industrial accidents, and hospital transfers. Filming took place between November 2009 and February 2010. The charity has carried out over 30,000 missions since 1991, and since they received no government or lottery funding, the service is hoping that the exposure will encourage donations. The Department of Health and Human Services has posted information about 64 healthcare organizations that have suffered breaches of patient medical records extensive enough to warrant public posting under the requirements of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, also known as the Stimulus Act. Posting dates range from September 2009 through March 2010. Under the Stimulus Act, HHS is obligated to post a list of breaches of so-called unsecured protected health information if the breach involves records of 500 or more individuals. Health insurance plans had three of the top five breaches and far away the two worst. 
Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Tennessee had more than 998,000 records exposed, and AvMed of Florida, owned by Santa Fe Healthcare, had 359,000 records exposed. Overwhelmingly, theft of a record storage devices was the most common type of breach, representing roughly two-thirds of those listed, while hackers accounted for just two breach incidents, or about 3%. Laptop computers were the most frequently stolen data storage devices, representing 26% of the breaches reported, followed by paper records at 19% and desktop computers at 16%. California, home to the first state breach notification law, had the most reported incidents at 20%, followed by Texas at 6%. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. Today I am interviewing Krista Hagen, Megan Hamilton, and Teresa Pearson, who are the co-founders of the Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport. Krista Hagen has 20 years of nursing experience from working as an emergency room nurse at the Tacoma General Hospital in Tacoma, Washington, the Harborview Medical Center Level 1 Trauma Center in Seattle, Washington, and an intensive care unit nurse with the Harborview Burn Center and Pediatric ICU. She worked as a flight nurse with Airlift Northwest for six years from 2000 to 2006, where she was involved in a crash off the roof of St. Peter's Hospital in Olympia, Washington in 2005. Krista is a 1991 graduate of the Pacific Lutheran University with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing and the University of Washington Tacoma in 1998 with a Master's in Nursing. She served as the chair of Airlift Northwest's Safety Committee post-crash and is the recipient of the peer-nominated Airlift Northwest Fleetwood Reby Award in 2007, which recognizes the Outstanding Nurse of the Year. Presently, she is a traveling ER nurse splitting time between Hawaii and Seattle. Megan Hamilton has worked in the EMS field since 1993 as a first responder, emergency medical technician, and as a paramedic. She has worked with Baldwin, Kansas EMS, the emergency department at Stormont Val Regional Medical Center in Topeka, Kansas, the Shawnee Mission Medical Center in Shawnee Mission, Kansas, American Medical Response in Topeka, Kansas, Yellowstone Park Medical Services in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, and St. John's Medical Center in Jackson, Wyoming. Megan completed her Bachelor of Science in Nursing in 1997 from Baker University in Baldwin, Kansas, and has worked as a flight nurse with Star Care Air Ambulance in Lincoln, Nebraska, Alert Air Ambulance in Kalispell, Montana, where she was a member of the Safety Committee, and Reach Air Medical Services in Corvallis, Oregon. Teresa Pearson is trained as an RN and paramedic and became a flight nurse with Eagle Med based in Hayes, Kansas in 2001. In 2003, she started at Life Team based in Great Bend, Kansas, where she was a base manager for three years and a program development manager for an additional three years until 2007 when she was involved in a crash. 
Teresa now flies part-time with Life Team and is the emergency room coordinator at Clay County Medical Center in Clay Center, Kansas. She will be graduating from Tabor College with her Bachelor's of Science in Nursing in May 2010. Teresa will be starting an advanced registered nurse practitioner program in the spring of 2011. Teresa lives in Longford, Kansas with her husband Shane, who is a retired flight paramedic and is currently a firefighter and and a mobile intensive care technician with the Salina Fire Department. They have a blended family of five sons and two daughters between the ages of 23 and 8. Welcome to the podcast, Krista, Megan, and Teresa, and thank you so much for coordinating all your schedules to be on the show today. I know that wasn't always easy to get you all together. Well, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Pleasure. I wanted you all to know what an honor and privilege it has been to get to know you all from our first dinner organized by Tammy Chapman at AMTC back in uh, October in San Jose. And Krista, this has been especially meaningful for me since I served as the interim CEO of Airlift Northwest after you had left, and even with all the things I was working on, wished that I would have reached out and had the opportunity to get to know you much sooner when I was in Seattle, so I do apologize for that. Um, Apology accepted, and thank you for that. Yeah. Before we get into the Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport, um, I wanted to, uh, and, and, and how you formed it, I wanted to get some background information for our listeners. Um, I'd like for each of you to talk about the helicopter crash that you were involved with, including the date, the conditions at the time, how many were on board, and what the final NTSB investigation said was the cause of the crash. Um, Well, I was flying with Airlift Northwest, and it was October 28th of 2005, and I'd been a flight nurse there for five years and a nurse for 15. Um, It was We actually got dispatched in the evening to go to Willapa Harbor, which is in South Bend, Washington, for a patient with a leaking abdominal aortic aneurysm, and we um, embarked on that on that leg of the flight, and we actually had to turn around because of weather. And um, it was really anything but a normal day to begin with because we had lost Aaron Reed and Lois Suzuki and Steve Smith just one month prior. Yes. And uh, so, you know, our our hearts were definitely heavy to begin with, so it was really anything but a normal day. Um, We decided we'd rendezvous with a medic unit that was bringing this patient uh, north, uh, heading for Seattle, and we were going to rendezvous at St. Peter's Hospital in Olympia. Um, we met the patient, loaded him, and upon liftoff from the rooftop helipad, we lost engine power and um, crashed off the rooftop, um, I believe the report said about 70 feet, into a courtyard below. The um, We had just switched into new aircraft. We had been in the Augusta Mark IIs, and we were in the process of acquiring a new fleet, and um, the NTSB report final stated that um, our pilot had lifted with one engine um, in idle, and yeah. so we lost power, and we weren't high enough to recover from the, uh, mm-hmm. from the loss of power. So the NTSB report 
was pilot error then. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Megan, do you want to? Yeah, um, I was flying with Alert in Calistell, Montana, and uh, November second, two thousand six, we launched for a scene call across the valley, and it was uh, lightly snowing, but we had plenty of visibility. And after we launched, we were actually all talking about the weather and how we weren't going to make it to our destination. So. Yeah, about that same time, we had an engine chip light go off, and so we were able to cancel with all our the ground unit and the dispatch and tell the ER that we were coming back. And um, and then we had an uncontained engine failure on short final to our pad. And it was just the uh, paramedic, myself, and pilot. And uh, I believe the report showed that it was uh, they had maintenance done on the aircraft earlier in the day, and as, as a result of... Uh, that that uh, the engine failed. I see. Teresa? Um, our accident occurred in August of uh, 07, and it was the pilot, myself, and partner. We were launched to um, an NBC scene flight in Mullenville, Kansas. And um, as we were coming in on short final, we were about 300 foot, um, the pilot turned into um, the direction that we saw the LZ, and we heard a loud bang, and we had a compressor stall out at about 300 foot. And um, basically, uh, at the end of the day, the NTSB had decided it was um, pilot error, um, a misjudgment of winds that caused the compressor stall out. I, I missed, what was the last part of that again? Uh, pilot error from... Uh, Kind of a misjudgment of winds, um, oh. and yeah, we had a compressor stall out that actually caused the accident. Okay. We just didn't have enough running room to recover the aircraft by that point. Talk about if each of you could talk about how you felt at the time of the crash. I mean, what what were you going through? I know from you know talking to Jonathan in, in an earlier podcast, I just couldn't believe what he had been through being underwater and stuff what were your all you know uh, initial and a you know right after reactions to everything um i was in utter disbelief because we had just had a crash one month before yeah we had just lost our friends and coworkers. um we had just gone through the huge memorial service and um, we were in a brand new aircraft with you know night vision technology terrain awareness warning systems, you know, all the bells and whistles that were purported to be sort of the, you know, um, safety silver bullet um, for the industry. And so I was floored, and that's exactly how I felt. I was just completely in disbelief. Uh, I knew immediately that we were crashing because um, we're intimately familiar with the way the the engine noise is, and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it was gone. And um, it kind of seemed like... It took forever for us to finally hit the ground, and the tail rotor had impacted the retaining wall of the helipad on the rooftop, and you can't imagine how violent that was. And then the main rotor system hit, and we were just spun off into a very um, horrific and loud uh, kind of nightmare. And, you know, being a nurse, I know what the recipients from that kind of energy transfer look like. And I was waiting. I I thought that was coming. I thought we would either be, you know, uh, severely injured or killed in this. And, um, you know, it was was very difficult. But when I 
finally got out of the aircraft after we um, hit the ground, I had I felt nothing. I was completely emotionally numb, and I think we're going to talk a little bit later about why that was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for me, you know, it just started out as a chip light, and uh, I'd experienced those before, and um, at the other program I flew with, and I guess for some reason it's always been a lot of pilots and uh, other people I've flown with have always kind of downplayed that a little bit, as in it's just fuzz on the sensor, nothing to worry about. Um, so it was really uh, more of a shock after uh, starting to hear the engine make those bizarre, strange uh, noises, um, that it was something more than just fuzz on the sensor. So it was um, just, it, I don't know, it was kind of a, more of a calmness, just uh, going through the emergency procedure through in my head and uh, thinking out different possibilities that could happen and then... Uh, um, hoping for the best on the on the impact and kind of preparing for the worst. Teresa, mm-hmm. um, I think the first reality that hit me is the fact that uh, we were drifting into the scene and there were five patients, multiple ambulance, fire people, you know, three lanes of traffic that was backed up and. I knew a lot of the people on the ground, close friends, uh, one of which I flew with, and the first thing that popped in my head is we're going to kill all these people. Um, the next thing, you know, somehow or another we um, got to going at least away from the scene, which was a relief, but then knowing that our option was to try to land in, in between two highways, and all I could see was power wires coming at us. And so in that instant, I started thinking about, you know, my husband, my kids, and the fact that this is probably going to be it. And uh, when we went through the power lines and landed on the ground, um, our pilot was rendered unconscious for a short time, and and I thought he was dead. I could see him, but I thought he was dead, and and, uh, the helicopter was still moving. And so it lifted back up and came back down on its side, and just riding that aircraft out knowing that I really wasn't sure if I had a pilot behind the stick was pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, so... um, you know, I was I was amazed. I, I think when everything quit spinning, the first thing I thought is I want to take, you know, I want to make sure my pilot's okay and, then, and my partner. And then the next thing I thought is I can't believe we're alive. I was shocked that we were still there. So uh, relief that I, that was a phone call that wouldn't be made to my, my family. Um, but a, a definite shock that it happened. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I know it must be very difficult i'm sure just almost you know everything that goes through your mind and and time just almost stands still i know from uh, talking to jonathan you know he said that too it just you know what seconds you know seem like minutes almost what did you each learn from a safety perspective and how your crash may have been prevented um things became very real (laughs) after the crash. And, and for me personally, things were real before the crash because, um, we had just lost an aircraft right. and, and, you know, we had lost, um, an aircraft there in 95 before I'd started working there, but I was very aware of it because I was an ER nurse locally. And, um, so safety has always been a very, very real thing for me. And it, it just reinforced it all the more. Um, so, 
you know, I just tried to walk the talk as much as I could. And I was uh, on the chair, I was the chair of the safety committee after that and really, really tried to reinforce to people how important it is um, as an individual and as an organization that when you say that safety is your number one priority, you mean it. And right. you put your behavior and your actions and your money where your mouth is because um, we're living the reality of what happens when, you know, an accident happens. And we would never want anybody else to experience what we've experienced. Exactly. And practical standpoint, you know, we had had excellent survival training. We'd had uh, dry land, winter, and water survival training. And I will say that hands-on survival training is imperative in this industry. And oddly enough, in the accident, it was the water survival training that had proved to be most helpful for me. And so whether you work, you know, in the Midwest where there's not a whole lot of uh, water that you fly over, you know, it's still something that is is very beneficial conceptually in any kind of a, of a accident. Is that because of the um, position you were in when the aircraft finally came to rest? Well, you know, in the water survival training, when I was um, in, in the dunker and you're hanging upside down, right. you realize how much slack there is in your belt. And so since... Since then, I uh, had worn my belt as tightly as I possibly could because I, you know, the, the physics of the accident and the way the aircraft are built, same with cars, you have to wear your restraining devices properly in order for them to work properly. And so that just reinforced that all the more for me. And, you know, I think that that may be part of what contributed to walking away without a significant um, back injury from the crash. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, taking safety extremely seriously, not being afraid of it, not being afraid to look at, you know, what potentially can happen. You know, risk mitigation is actually a very fascinating, you know, subject. And I would run through daily all the possible scenarios of what could go wrong and what we, what we could do to mitigate that. And it's actually very interesting It's if people choose to, to face it. Mm-hmm. I'd have to second that with Teresa that, um, survival training is is hugely imperative, if not physically going through the motions, but mentally kind of preparing yourself uh, for the what ifs. Um, as far as you know, safety perspective, it's more of the system of checks and balances. You know, there's got to be um, you know a way to kind of check what's being done so that is everything where it should be and and um, all the maintenance completed. And I know I don't have a piece of that, but I ask a lot of questions. I guess any time uh, a mechanic touched that aircraft or a pilot touched that aircraft, I was very, uh, first thing I would do is go right over there and say, okay, what happened? What was done? Uh, what what was the result? Um and a couple of the nurses I worked with were kind of keen on that, too, with me. They would uh, help point some things out or, um, you know, hey, it's going to sound different. Um, but it's, it's awareness, and it's also making sure that your whole head's in the game the whole time. Um, but, uh, did you, uh, did yeah. you get a good response from the, the mechanic and pilots when you asked those types of questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a couple pilots I'd always go to, um, including the one that uh, was the pilot on the night that we went down, um, and a couple of our senior pilots were really good about if I had questions, pull off the cowlings and uh, um, show show me what hadn't happened, um, show me what kind of maintenance was done, that type of thing. 
just just really answer my questions because um, you know being a nurse I only know so much aviation wise I, I learned quite a bit but um, you know it's just not my realm of expertise and so they were more than willing to help with that our mechanic changed over um, so but he was pretty good too when things would come up right I think for me it's um especially, you know, part of my role was in training. Um, so it was always part of my awareness or my, my, in my mind, you know, but now it's like it's, there's almost a door that says safety on it that I have to walk through. It's the, you know, in the front of my mind now, it's right in my face and I have to walk through it every time I get on a helicopter now and knowing what my pilot's doing and his environment um, where I knew a lot of it before is really imperative to me now, and just how that helicopter. After I respect that helicopter uh, probably a lot uh, more than I ever did before because it is a machine, and you need to respect it, know your environment, and so I, I look at it through different eyes now, and I can't help but not to. I mean, it's just um, once you've gone through something like this, it changes every aspect of how you approach doing what we do, mm. whether you want it to or not. It's different. And so I think it just is something um, that is not awareness anymore. It's a, a, a true action that you have to take every time now. It's just got to be everything has to fall into place and truly be okay um, and everybody be on board with that uh, for you to complete that mission now. So I think it's just when they say it's more hypervigilant and everything else, I mean, that's truly uh, the punchline. It's completely different now. And how do you get that message or how how has that message changed to others like other crew members and especially maybe a, a new crew member who might be you know still learning and has all these questions but doesn't want to appear stupid you know i mean we've always where i've been always tried to encourage people if you have a question ask it but um you know a lot of times people don't want to do that how do you get that message to your other crew members and i know christy you you know became chair of the safety committee, so it gave you a, a, a place to do that. But um, how do you talk to your other crew members to, to get that kind of hyper-aware, hyper-vigilant uh, attitude? You know, that's an excellent question, and it's actually extremely complicated. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, um, being a crash survivor, you know, creates sort of this instant stigma. And... Um, you sort of become the elephant in the room and, you know, um, people, you know, there's a sense of curiosity. There are some people that want to hear uh, all about it in great detail. There are some people that want to learn from it. And there's some people that don't even want to see your face because you're a reminder, simply because you're a reminder of their own mortality and the dangers of the job that they love. Mm. And so, you know, when you're in, in the state that you're in post-crash, you know, it's hard to tailor your message <laughs> to each one of those individual, you know, personality types because their reception of your message is going to be entirely different. And, um, you know, I did, I did see that post-crash, you know, the, the reception of my message, you know, depending on who the person was, was, it was really varied from individual to individual. And, um, so I think that that's kind of the point of what we're doing now. Now that we're all a few years out from our crash, we can sort of tailor our message to different um, 
different education styles and different personality types so that hopefully everybody will be able at some point to hear it. Um, but immediately post-crash is extremely difficult. But but it is important to be, I mean, you know, safety, safety, safety. I mean, we always keep talking about that, and you all have a very changed and keen attitude. I mean, I'm sure you did before, but I mean, even more so, how do you get that a, across to people? Do you feel that you've been successful with that in uh, maybe tailoring uh, the message to different people? I have a quote for you that fits in pretty well right here. <laughs> um, it, it says, human beings who are almost unique in having the ability to learn from the experience of others are also remarkable for their apparent disinclination to do so. Yeah. And that's by Douglas Adams. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, part of it are the individual issues. Part of it is that people are in pain and they're grieving and part of it is because of um, a PR issue, to be honest with you. I think a lot of organizations would just as soon kind of forget that these kinds of things ever happen. And, you know, unfortunately, that is a grave error because to not have the opportunity, take the opportunity that is handed to you to learn the lessons from these accidents, that's just a travesty in my book. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go into some of that a little bit later, but I think that is a real important point. That is a good quote because you, uh, you know, how how do you accept that message? And, uh, you know, we'll go into some, maybe some training that uh, can be done for crew members that, you know, weren't involved, but, uh, right. you know, how they can accept you all better, learn from you better, and, you know, get you back in because I know you've all had uh, some difficult times uh, doing that. Um, what impact did your crashes have on your families, and was there pressure to stop flying immediately afterwards or even later? I would have to say for me, I have a large family. Not that uh, that makes a difference, but I have, um, between my husband and I, we have seven children. And um, my mother lost my oldest brother to head trauma years ago, and that's actually what prompted me to get into this business. And uh, it was very difficult for her. It's still difficult for her. It's um, something that um, she understands it's a big part of who I am and tries to deal with that, uh, but she's still healing. and It's been almost three years, and we have to have a lot of discussions, a lot of talk, and a lot of support uh, to kind of work those things out together because I can't imagine, uh, especially being a parent of so many children, of losing one of my children, like what she's lived through, and then to come so close to having it happen a second time. And, um, you know, my youngest son had the biggest difficulty with it. Um, he did want me to quit, and he's a big reason, too, partly why I backed off to um, part-time status, that he would uh, stand between me and the door, you know, basically, I don't know that I can let you do this, Mom. You know, and I had to really sit him down and and talk with him. We we've we had to go through counseling. There was just a lot of emotional healing for my family, which sometimes uh, made it difficult for me to heal because um, as a parent, you always put your kids' needs before you. So, yeah. you know, that first year was a huge amount of healing for my kids and for my for my mother, and 
almost kind of made my symptoms worse in some aspects because I was so worried about making sure they were all okay uh, that I didn't deal with my own. So I think that's a factor that we have to look at uh, when these incidents happen at our company and uh, really make sure that we're taking care of the entire family, you know, um, right along with the crews and anybody else that affects uh, because it's really hard to leave your, your place of business and then go home. And we don't see that emotional turmoil that it causes at your home or see that pain that it's causing your family to understand why you still have the desire to do this job after what's happened. Hmm. So, you know, that's huge, and it needs to be incorporated in our healing process. Um, if we really, truly want to heal our employees, we have to think about their families and encompass that as well. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, my my family was um, extraordinarily supportive in uh, – I know they didn't want me flying, but they never put any pressure on me. Um, I flew for about a year after the crash, and, you know, they, I think, understood that that was something that I just – I felt like I needed to do for part of my own healing process. Um, but I know that it was very hard on them. And, um, you know, if I were to do it over again, I'm not sure I would have done it the same way um, because of the toll I think it took on them as well. Um, but they were supportive. Um, I mean, they were, they were amazingly supportive, and I'm very, very thankful. I've already lost a sister, and so it's kind of similar to Teresa's situation where, you know, to, to put my, my parents through, uh, you know, nearly losing another child and my brother and sisters through losing another sibling, um, you know, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, how difficult that was for them. Um, cause I was kind of lost in my own, uh, you know, personal trials at the time. So, um, yeah, the families definitely can't be ignored in this picture. You think you would have, you said if you could do it over again, do you, um, if you had paid more attention to their needs, do you think you would have stopped flying sooner? You know, it's hard to say, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like what Teresa said, you know, it, you've got this balancing of your own need to heal plus the needs of your family plus the needs of your, uh, you know, your organization and your coworkers. Um, and so there's a lot of balancing to be done, uh, but primarily if you don't help yourself, you can't help anybody else. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm honestly not sure whether flying again was the right thing to do or not. Um, I, f- I felt at the time that I had to, so at this point, I guess I can't second guess that. Right. Okay. So I would say my family was um, supportive of of uh, the process, the journey I had to take. Occasionally, they asked the hard questions. Um, you know, are you sure you really want to do this? Is it worth it? Um, which I think. At some point, everybody will ask that um, question. But, I mean, they were, in the end, very supportive of everything. So, Okay. What, what measures, you know, could have been done uh, to help the healing process for both you and your families by your individual flight programs? What could they have done better for you and your families? Or did they? Um, you know, um, I feel like there were some things that they did pretty well and some things that they needed work on. And, you know, unfortunately, this is uncharted territory for everybody. And so I don't hold them, 
you know, I, I don't I don't fault them for um, their shortcomings, but I would fault them if they didn't learn from their shortcomings, mm-hmm. and as I would myself. Um, so I think that probably first and foremost is open communication uh, between the organization and the individuals in the crashes, um, the rest of the crew, and then between uh, the organization and, and the people's families. Um, because, you know, the, the organizations don't exist in a vacuum. All of this, in, the impact is very far-reaching, and I think that's something that has to be recognized. And it's a scary thing because sometimes people have to admit fault. Um, but I think our only interest in, you know, kind of getting to the root of the problem is simply that we can rectify the problem. You know, it's not to place blame. It's not to find fault. It's simply so that we can correct it so it doesn't happen to other people. Um, and so people have to kind of get past their fears and allow there to be open communication. I think that's the, the best place to start. Was there some of that? You said there was some good things. What what things maybe could have been changed that would have helped without, you know, blaming, but what did you learn from that? Um, I think that um, most, I think that, to tell you the truth, I think my organization was just tapped out yeah. by the loss of Air of Four. Right. And I can imagine that the, the outcome would have been entirely different had this not occurred in the wake of losing, you know, three people at one time. Um, and so I understand that. Um, I think that to rectify that in the future, programs not only need to have, uh, you know, like a CISM in whatever form type of program already set up ahead of time, you know, pre, pre-incident, pre-accident, um, but also network with um, the community so that the community can step in, you know, uh, the police services, the fire services have CISM networks set up, you know, to network with them and have them step in in cases where the organization as a whole is overwhelmed. So, I mean, we, we, the three of us, um, and as well as Jonathan and some other survivors we've met, you know, have, you know, long lists of things that can be done, but I think that that's one of the primary ones. Okay. Did Airlift have their CISM team at the time, or was that formed after? Airlift had a CSM team um, that had kind of dwindled down to one or two individuals who uh, did a tremendous job. And, you know, I have to say Kathy Pace is a tremendous, you know, uh, individual. And she was doing the best she could with what she had. You know, uh, I think she's kind of kind of out there on her own (laughs) for a while. And uh, I can only imagine how difficult that was for her. And in the wake of these crashes, um, Ann Kellogg and uh, Grant Brophy and myself and um, a group of, you know, really tremendous individuals from Airlift put together a steering committee to develop a CISM and peer support team. And, um, you know, I've been there in several years, but I know that, that Ann and her uh, team is are still very passionate about trying to make that work. Um, I will add, though, that you know it needs to be supported on an organizational level because it's not an easy undertaking, right? For you know the individuals that are in charge of it. And, it's and, a lot of and work. yeah, and and part of your crash, Krista, it was as you said, it was on the heels, and it was 
like it was without being i don't know if someone said this to you exactly but did you get the feeling that you know well you survived you're you're alive you know we're still grieving over the loss of the of the individuals um that lost their lives in in puget sound there you think there was some yeah. of that yeah oh absolutely and yeah. i think that's an entirely natural response yes you know but unfortunately um you know, I, it just this is just a matter of really bad timing, right. and I can't blame anybody for feeling that way, at all. So okay, Megan, I understand. Yeah. You, you gotta have uh, an intact and effective CISM team, um, or at least be able to pull from the community resources, the hospital resources, and um, you know, if you're gonna. It's going to be done well done and done appropriately. Um, I think there was a little bit of uh, mix up in, in that while there was support for continuation of the program and stuff, it, it uh, the the shift in focus changed from you know our needs, the crew's needs, um, those in the ER, to um, more about you know the program's still going to be here. Um, so that made it a little more difficult and harder to kind of deal with a little bit. Um, and it, you know, like I said, it's it's a harder when it's you know we're all walking, talking, and you know, not nobody lost their life. So and it was just a you know a little hard landing, nothing to really be concerned about. And I think that's kind of the approach. Not everybody, I can't speak for everybody. I know there's um, lots of people supportive, but it it's got to have these plans and all this stuff in place first and foremost and then, um, and just follow up on the communication and uh, have people that can you know take care of the program needs but also somebody to take care of the people um, the other team members and their families and friends and stuff like that so mm -hmm. I think that the thing that I probably learned the most out of it that I really tried to share with my management because I was in management at the time of our accident. So it kind of put me in kind of a unique position. And um, initially, you know, I didn't want to say, do, think anything that would um, make the incident any worse because I knew what it was like to walk in management shoes. In the same respect, you know, it was hard to um, be too awfully honest or, or say a whole lot of what I felt to crew members because I didn't want to influence them because we did lose crew, crew members from that ripple effect initially after the accident. Um, and then you have family on the other side of that coin. So the thing that I did share with them that I kind of learned along the way is that, you know, we have a, kind of a, a split sense when you look at crews. I mean, you have some crew members that are going to want to come up to you and say, hey, what did you learn? Tell me everything you know. I, I, I'm interested. And then on the other side of that coin, you have the crew members that are like, you know, you're truly too much of a reality for me. And I, 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 even though I'm safety conscious, I don't want to think that this could happen to me. Um, I hit them both with the same honesty about safety and what's happened to me, what I learned, because even that crew member that maybe they don't want to hear about it, they're going to walk away and at least absorb some of it. The other thing that I think that can um, help from a management standpoint is um, – they can really eliminate the elephant in the room. And, mm -hmm. what it, you know, what I mean by that is validation that you are not a baggaged, damaged crew member, but actually you have experience to share. And, you know, I did have a couple crew members that were like, well, you know, Teresa talked about this with safety. It's a good point, but, you know, I really think that accident affected her. 
And the response to that is, yes, it did, and, you know, she's experienced, we should listen to this. It eliminates that elephant in the room immediately and that validation. So, um, you know, that's something we had to kind of learn along the way, uh, along the way in uh, validating that um, you go from a realism that uh, safety has to be a factor to the reality that now it's right in your face. So um, that's probably something our company really learned along the way is just, you know, you have to validate those crew members and you have to um, deem them experienced instead of damaged. Um, and that helps turn those attitudes around, I think. Uh, that's a great. That's a real good point. I, I think when I, you know, first uh, met you all and had dinner in, in San Jose, it was that's the thing I really uh, walked away with is how can we train management staff to understand and deal with this not only the survivors but all crew members and as you said, you know, the elephant in the room's a a big one. Are, are there some other things that uh, you've learned that um, that management of programs can better understand? Um, the long haul. Uh, you know, post-PTSD uh, is, is a long haul process. It's yes. not um, something that, that those immediate uh, stress debriefs or crisis interventions that you do will totally cover it. I mean, I didn't really start having a lot of problems until you know, several months after the accidents when it came home to roost for me. And so a lot by that time, a lot of times your company or those people that have been um, affected have kind of moved forward and now you haven't. And so I think re-looking at the fact that this is something that's got to be a long-term commitment to that crew member and their family, uh, the, the worse that I got, my family got more concerned, and that's when they really had more questions than even in the beginning. So I think we have to look at it that uh, this might not be an easy fix, and we really need to have supportive mechanisms in place for the long haul um, and taking care of the crew members the same way. Good point. But is it through, like, EAP programs that um, that you always have resources? It doesn't matter how long. I mean, I think that's something I learned you know, I, when I was at Duke, there was a crash in um, 2000. Uh, as pilot, we lost the the pilot, but I, you know, learned how different people react. And some people, it's immediate. Some people, it's it's much later. And that longer term thing uh, did impact. But we made sure that people had, if they needed any help, we kept bringing it up in staff meetings that it was there. Um, is that what you're talking about, or is there more? Yeah, I think you need to yeah. be encouraging and have that open-door policy that, um, you know, we we talked about this a lot the other day. You know, EMS care providers or pre-hospital care providers are, are in a peacekeeper role. I mean, they go into all these chaotic situations, so we groom them from the get-go to take on these situations yes. and handle it. And then when it happens to them, they really don't know what to do with it. So I think we have to take that and give them the environment that's going to encourage them to use the open-door policy and really mean it um, and, and and really show that it's in place. And so I think sometimes, you know, when they walk by and say, no, I'm good, I'm good, um, really making sure that um, that's really the truth, you know. So um, Is it also in recognizing what the symptoms are? Because somebody can say, I'm good. And you know they're not. I mean, because you know oh, yeah. the person you've worked with. Oh, them. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we have to do more education within our corporations to 
uh, make sure our crew members understand the the symptoms of um, uh, PTSD. And you know, I had to educate myself on it. And once I started really understanding that I truly um, had this going on, it actually made everything better for me. You know, I didn't feel like, oh, what's going on with me? I'm just lost in this mess. You know, so I think really truly educating our crew members and and making it a reality that it can happen and have that education out there, I think helps them a lot too. So, yeah. And for the managers to realize that, you know, it's not something that you're just going to get over and move on from, you know, it's something that, I mean, if you use uh, airlift as an example, you know, they lost an entire crew in the old aircraft. They lost an, or they lost an entire new aircraft and almost lost the crew. Right. So sort of the sense of security. I mean, your old aircraft crashed for an unknown reason. The new aircraft crashed, you know, for sort of a series of reasons. And so you sort of lose your sense of security. You're grieving the loss of three people. And then, additionally, the people that end up leaving the organization because of several, several, you know, reasons. Right. And then you have um, a reorganization of the business itself at the same time. And, you know, for uh, the management, you know, for management in those types of situations to think, you know, we're going to wipe this slate clean, we're going to pick up, we're going to start new, you need to put this away and get over it, is so sadly unrealistic because we're all people. <laughs> we're not robots. Right. And so we're going to we're going to experience these emotions, you know, until they are dealt with adequately. And if we don't deal with them adequately, we try to squash them, you know, then the sort of result is manifested in, you know, our behavior and our health and our increased sick calls and our, you know, uh sort of more difficult work environment. And so, you know, if, if, if managers and organizations would realize that, you know, these are very real things that, that need to be dealt with, and if they're dealt with appropriately, you can have a really, you know, rich uh, learning experience and move forward as a very healthy organization. If you don't, you don't. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. We're not we're not just making that up. That is very well researched. Well, and, and I agree. I, I think, but there, there's also pressure, even when you provide stuff from crew members. You know, certain some people. You know, let's just get on. You know, enough talked about it enough. I don't want right. to talk about it anymore. You know, right. and uh, you know, just man up, woman up. Let's get back to work. Because um, uh, right. I I know I personally experienced that. Um, you know, when, when I was at Duke, and I would talk to people individually, I say people deal with things at different times. It it just comes out. Um, right. You talk uh, about the post accident incident plan, and a lot of times that's you know the immediate stuff after a, a crash. You also talked about that there should be tools for the longer term. Is is this the type of thing you're talking about? Is ongoing training awareness? Um, about what right. people are... you know, these, these types of things don't have to be sort of a dwelling on the negative. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be very creative, they can be very thinking out of the box, and they don't have to be expensive, you know, ways to provide ongoing education that at the same time can acknowledge, you know, that we on the front lines of EMS, you know, experience very difficult things every day. Let's make sure that we have balance. Let's make sure that we are supported that we're given the tools to do the jobs that we're good at. And um, all those things contribute to a healing and healthy environment. 
It doesn't have to be dwelling on the negative, but you have to look at the negative so that you can learn from it. So there's kind of a, a balance that needs to be needs to be found, and you know it's a good challenge, but it's it's something that is very rewarding if it's actually you know looked at that way. Right. Well, you all talked about PTSD or post traumatic stress disorder. When did you each of you realize that you had symptoms, and what were they? Um, I'd have to say the minute I stepped out of the helicopter, <laughs> I <laughs> thought it was really odd that I didn't feel anything. You yeah. know, kind of stepping back and looking objectively at myself, I literally had that thought. I was like, you know, wow, uh, it's really strange that you don't feel anything. This does not bode well. So, um, you know, I was, I felt that way for probably about three months. And then all of a sudden, I was just sitting in my living room one day, and I felt like I felt like the sky fell on my head. Hmm. And it was like everything just sort of, you know, rushed to the surface. And I started to have nightmares, and I started to, uh, you know, have that uh, hypervigilance and um, the sleep disturbances. And and I've never had trouble sleeping in my life, and so sleep disturbances disrupt your life more than anything. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, probably, probably three months later is when the big symptoms hit me. Wow. In, in studying it, to, did, um, is that kind of, I'm sure there's not a normal cause it's all at different times, but that kind of delayed response. Is that yeah, it's actually yeah. very typical yeah. Um, yeah. to yeah. start having symptoms a few months. I think initially when it happens, you're in shock. I mean, you're so glad that you're alive. You're so glad that you get to go home to your family and that they're so glad to have you. Right. That And, you know, and, and if, especially if you have an injury during it, you know, I was, I did have an injury. So, you know, I'm, I'm just worried about getting myself back together and, and what's this going to mean for my future that, um, and again, I was so worried about how my children were taking it and my mother and, you know, spouse that I kind of put all their feelings ahead. And, you know, four or five months down the road, when things start to seem better with those that I care about is when it hits me, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, reliving the last 30 seconds of the accident. And I had, um, you know, nightmares that my pilot wasn't alive, you know, just things like that. And and uh, I think when the reality really hit me that I was having those symptoms um, is when I actually talked to Megan when she contacted me. Um, I was able to actually let go of all those feelings and really realize that I was suffering from this. So um, it was it was several months probably after the incident that I really had a grasp on the fact that I was suffering from yeah. uh, um, PTSD. Yeah. And and for me, it was a shock for the first few weeks, and then kind of the reality hit tenfold. And then I kind of got myself back together a little bit with some help from some friends and um, talking to Krista. And then it kind of snowballed again, and that's when everything really started uh, getting worse was a few months later. So it, It's interesting. I've done some – I, you know, everybody's heard of it, but, you know, I looked up – some of the definitions and some of the things you guys were just talking about, it was, you know, reliving the event, kind of the avoidance or feeling of detachment or, you know, excessive awareness, difficulty concentrating, sleeping types of things. And I know uh, Jonathan, you know, had survivor's guilt too, because um, the other crew members were, were killed in that, that crash. So uh, do you think training in this area would, would then help? Um, yeah, for people to really 
know more about it so they could recognize those symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you don't think, have to be in an accident to have the post-traumatic stress. And we talk right. about this all the time about, right. you know, um, I've talked to many, many people, um, other flight nurses, medics, um, who, uh, because of the things that they see day to day are changed. And it's very, very similar to PTSD. It's the same hypervigilance, sleep disturbances, nightmares. And so um, some of the professional people I've talked to have actually said that PTSD is, you know, extraordinarily underdiagnosed. And, uh, you know, actually it's kind of a, a disservice to call it a disorder because, you know, I think yeah. these are very normal things to experience after right. you witness uh, the suffering and the trauma that we, that we have in our careers. That's very true. It, and you also all talk about kind of flight crew wellness, and it, is this kind of part of that? But you say, you know, both from a physical and emotional level, and that, you know, good pre-education is needed. Is this the, these are the types of things you're talking about, or you have other items? Well, I, think it, I think it sets the stage. I mean, if we do education with crew members that this has a potential mm -hmm. uh, of happen, happening to you, uh, and, and encourage it not to be a bad thing, that it's out there, it can happen, just like, um, you know, it, certain illnesses. I mean, they can happen, especially if you're in the environment that create them. And so I think if we encourage from the get-go that we want you to know these symptoms, we have this open door, we want to help you with them, and create an environment that's open about it, um, people are less likely to carry it with them and bury it and well, put on this face that it doesn't, it's not affecting them. And I think that's where we really run into uh, crew um, wellness issues is when they start carried, you know, carrying this backpack effect of putting different incidents and accidents and thoughts or worries into this backpack and they just never really deal, deal with them. Right. Um, and, and then it all surfaces at one, at one time and, and can really affect that crew member. So I think... Um, really educating the openness that um, we want you to come talk to us and that we know these things can happen is going to help from the get-go. Mm -hmm. oh, not necessarily having to talk to management, but, uh, you know, just that day-to-day -day stressors, what we bring to the plate, coming to work with family issues or work or outside stressors, as well as what we see day-to-day -day as a part of our job. How do we, I mean, awareness to those build up and, you know, no matter what it is to have an outlet to kind of de-stress yourself and make that a priority so that you can have a healthy long career. There was a quote by one of the New York City firefighters um, post 9-11 and he said, uh, I can do anything when I know my brothers are beside me. And I think that really embodies the spirit of most of the most of the flight crews out there because they are the types of people that can handle, you know, massive chaos and they can handle the traumas, but they have to know that they're supported. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's by your coworkers and that's by your organization and that's by the industry. And uh, this is all part of providing that support. Right. And, and I think true, you know, as you all as caregivers, I think seeking help sometimes is a very hard kind of role reversal for you because you're the ones Absolutely. caring. Um, I, I guess, how did you all 
each deal with that dilemma and were there aha moments that you you needed to to do something i just i knew i wasn't myself yeah and uh you know and i was actually told that by you know lots of friends you know they're like wow you're just you're just not you and they were saying that just to be honest which i really appreciated um i knew it <laughs> i didn't feel normal but you know they were like you know, it's like the, the thing that makes you, you goes away. And so, um, you know, it was very difficult being a caregiver and being, you know, the one that's in control and the one that helps other people and the peacekeeper, you know, to actually admit that I needed uh, some assistance, but there, there was no alternative for me. I needed counseling. Yeah. And, uh, cause I didn't, I did not feel comfortable, uh, or content living in the state that I was in. And the only way to to change that was to change it by taking some action. And so, you know, I, I got counseling and I did a lot of research and just tried to educate myself about um, what I thought was going on. And uh, it's a lot of hard work, but it's definitely worth it in the end. It's almost probably just the opposite because, mm-hmm. you know, the normal thing is, oh, I'm just going to get on, you know, come on, get over it, just move on, <laughs> and, and I can get back to my caregiver uh-huh. role but it's really the opposite if you spend the time and as you said it does take time it it helps yeah. you in the long run much better yeah i can attest on it though. trying to be having denial doesn't doesn't uh go very far you can try to be the the pony up and and uh, get back on the horse and but it's really you know something's not right and it should be, it's not normal to feel the way you do and have the, the things happening to you. And, you know, thank God for good, dear friends <laughs> that kind of help push you to that um, and to, to get counseling and to get help. And, and, and I think from an organizational perspective that that's got to be known that people can. You can go into the office of your supervisor and and tell them, and maybe they're not the one that does the counseling, but they recognize, you know, that's okay. You know, we're going to get you off today. You're not going to be able, you know, you're not going to do anybody a favor working today. Let's get you into some counseling, you know, if it's an immediate thing, or, you know, have have the tools there, but have the recognition, and that it's okay, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that there's, there's well, not a stigma to that. Absolutely. You know, I, I had to make up in my own mind that if um, this accident didn't kill me, um, and I'm taken from my children and my, my, my family, that if I didn't deal with the symptoms of PTSD, that was going to take me from them. So mm-hmm. it was a recognition that if I'm really going to, you know, deliver myself back to my family, you know, I have to take care of me first and uh, because you're not the same. And um, there's there's a huge amount of um, self-help. I mean, you just have to take care of yourself. And, and I totally agree with you. I think sometimes, especially the best gift we can give our people as managers is just recognition that maybe they need something we can't give them and just making that okay and finding it for them. Right. So, you know, I, I would yeah. definitely agree with that. Well, and secondarily, you know, beyond the crashes, you know, you're looking at a potential loss of your career and, uh, you know, when you have to go back to work and, you know, be in the very thing that caused your trauma to begin with, um, you know, whether you feel like that's part of your healing process or not, I mean, that is a huge dilemma as well as, you know, the question, what do I do next? I mean, 
this was, you know, a job that I really worked hard to get and I loved it. And I really wasn't, you know, um, excited about going to do anything, anything else at that point. So it's like, how do you make a decision about what to do next while you're in the throes of, um, you know, post-traumatic stress? I mean, the ripple effect on a person's whole entire life is massive, but it's something that people don't see. And right. so, you know, that's part of the education I think we're trying to get out there is, you know, this goes, you know, what you might see um, at work is just the very tip of the iceberg of what's really happening in somebody's life. And, and again, from a management's perspective, it's an investment in your in your people and your crew, because if you don't exactly. provide it, then you will lose people. Um, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to lose your good quality staff. And, so. um, and it makes well, a difference in the market even. area. You know, it, it, I had a, a, a physician tell me that, uh, you know, because I did a huge amount of the marketing for our company, that uh, it's not so much how you, you trip and fall down when something happens in your corporation, but how you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and go forward. And he told me that, you know, he would know two things if I ever landed in a helicopter in his um, hospital again that, um, you know, yeah, it's safe to fly with her because I know her. I know how things are. I know what she's made of. And secondly, they took care of her. And that meant a lot to him knowing that our crew was going to be taken care of and that they were going to be behind us in healing. So, you know, in your market area, that's, you know, especially if they're used to seeing your face and have for years, that's huge to them. Right. So, you know, that, that ripple effect carries all the way out into your service area. Well, and the, the, the probably the take-home point is that, you know, what the organization does does matter. And uh, it matters to the individual, you know, whether or not they stay at the organization because, you know, an experienced flight crew member is pretty invaluable in terms of, you know, there are a lot of idiosyncrasies and really subtle nuances of this job that are hard to teach in a classroom, and it comes with experience. And so, you know, yeah, it's it's great to retain them, and it's great to – it saves the organization money. But when you look at society as a whole, if you help restore this person to healthy function, you know, even if they choose to leave, they can go out and still be a productive member of society. You know, how many of these people have we lost, and they've just kind of dropped out of sight, and we don't know what happened to them? You know, you can see where, um, like, the statistics on the PTSD and the folks that came back from Vietnam, the people that are coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, the suicide rates, you know, those things are all, um, you know, largely preventable if these systems are in place ahead of time and utilized effectively. But, you know, it, it would be really tragic to lose somebody, you know, because we choose not to look at something or... You know, we're losing valuable, valuable members of, uh, you know, our EMS crews because of this type of thing. And it just hasn't been really looked at that closely yet, um, but it definitely needs to be. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a very good point. And I think even, you know, if you did leave, but if the organization was supporting you, I think that also the, the other crew members see that, you know, that you weren't Absolutely. leaving because of the organization so much as just, you know, your own personal journey. Um, right. That you were you're able to get the uh, uh, you know help that you needed so that you can go and maybe that's working in in an emergency department or doing something else um, 
with your career, but knowing the other crew members knowing that you're supported. Well, well, let's let's talk about um, the Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport. How did you all meet and and form the organization? How did it all start? Uh, actually, more informal, just um, a pay it forward. As uh, Krista's accident happened first, and she happens to be from Montana, and uh, simply called after our accident just to off call a chief flight nurse to offer words of support to the crew and um and the rest of the team and then um i contacted her several weeks after that and despite you know differences of accidents a lot of the things post were very similar and uh we kind of made our own support group of two and and then when uh me being from Kansas, when Teresa's accident happened, I did the same thing, paid it forward to their team. Uh, happened to know one of the, the guys I used to work with on the ambulance that worked mm-hmm. for her program. And it really, it, it was just that. It was just, hey, I've been there. Here's some support. You know, whether somebody was having a bad time, or we were having a bad, whatever, it was more support. Uh, where it kind of got some teeth was um, at AMTC in Tampa. One, one of the uh, pilots I knew from a new uh, program had uh, suggested that I needed to present my accident at AMTC. And, you know, <laughs> we're telling them, I have nothing. We didn't learn anything. and Nobody wants to hear about mine. And he, he gently kept pushing and pushing the issue. And, um, you know, it, it took a while to kind of make sense that it's not just about the crash. It's about everything after the the ripple effect the need for support it's so huge and then uh it just made sense it took a little bit of time but it made sense that you know it's the three of us we we've paid it forward to each other and and beyond the three of us we've continued to pay it forward and so it just made sense that that's that's not um it's an issue that's not being addressed within our community so yes absolutely uh, it had had to be done and it, it just the right thing to do. We've got to I, help each other out. I, I love that term. I love that movie too. Pay it forward. It's, um, yeah. I think that's a that's a great term. Krista, what what prompted you to reach out? Why why did you make that first step? Uh, you know, I I'll never forget um, the newspaper article from the Kalispell crash showed up on my email. My folks had sent it mm. to me, and um, I'm from Kalispell. You know, went to high school there. My got a lot of family in Montana, and uh, Montana is very near and dear to my heart. And that's just kind of how we are in Montana. You know, you look after each other. And um, so I called the flight program um, partly because of that, and then partly because I knew that just from personal experience that there aren't a lot of resources out there um, for the survivors of crashes. And um, I just thought I'd, you know, offer some words of support and you know say, you know. If you uh, you want to chat or you know, want to just swap uh, kind of war stories, stories so to speak, then you know I'd be willing to listen. And it turned out that the pilot of Megan's aircraft is uh, somebody I went to high school with. So there's your oh. two, degree, two degrees of separation from Montana. Yeah. And uh, you know he called back, and then uh, Megan ended up calling back a few weeks later. And um, you know her, I, I'll never forget that too because she said, uh, you know, hi, my name's Megan Hamilton, and I was on the I was the nurse on the alert helicopter that went down, and 
I thought I was okay and now I don't think I am. And so, you know, the conversation sort of uh, ensued from there and, you know, there were a lot of similarities and we are still finding people come out of the woodwork, you know, with very, very similar stories, whether they've been in an accident or whether they've been in a program that's had an accident or they've had a near miss or they've had a bad flight or, you know, the, the, the similarities are all over the place and we know that there's a need um, because of all this feedback that we've gotten. Yeah. Well, that's, it's wonderful. You took that step to, to get the ball rolling. I, I know I've, uh, I told you about the crash at, at Duke in 2000 and it was actually doing AMTC. It was in uh, Salt Lake city. I had most of the management team gone when that happened. Um, but I'll never forget um, other program directors or folks that were at other hospital-based programs called and, you know, just gave me some assurance. It was great. I mean, I was hanging on to that post-accident incident plan. <laughs> like, you know, you wouldn't believe, I mean, it was, it was gold um, because it really just gave me a framework uh, to hang on to because there was myself and one other management staff. So we had to pull, you know, staff members in to, to assist, et cetera. But uh those calls were real important, and, I, and I've done the same thing. I've kind of, um, I've never used the term pay it forward, but I, I uh, have done the same when there's been crashes. I've reached out to the manager of it and just saying, here's what I went through. Here are some things that you need to be aware of, um, you know, and to assist. And actually, while I was at Airlift, you know, with the crash up in Alaska, reached out to them and helped, and of course, uh, you know, we sent an aircraft up there to assist them too. So that's always nice. I know at Duke, you know, we shut down the program and it was great. Everybody seems to come together. You know, the programs in North Carolina were, um, you know, flying patients for us. And, you know, when they came in, we all went out and greeted them and thanked them. And it is, it's, uh, it's very helpful to do that. Um, and it's nice that you're doing the same thing, you know, with uh, uh, their survivors. so um, Well, we can't really neglect to say that there have been, um, you know, many, many people along the way that, you know, have facilitated, you know, our getting our message out there. And we are, there's too many to thank by name, but, you know, they all know who they are and, right. and you know, yourself included in that. And we are extremely thankful to them because we couldn't do this ourselves. I mean, this is about a an industry-wide collaborative effort. So... Well, you, you've, everybody you've really raised, you know, because I know when I had dinner with you, I mean, I told Tammy, I said that it was one of the, you know, best evenings I've had. I mean, it's, I just, you just don't realize um, everything. You know, I've been very acutely aware of uh, crashes and, you know, people's feelings afterwards, but it's usually the, you know, grieving those lost. It's not uh, in the survivors thing. And, uh, and that, that's what I'd, told Tammy Chapman at the time, we really need to get this message out. We need to get some training to people so they know how to deal with it. So that's good. And I know you've gotten a lot of other help. What are the, um, you know, the mission, vision, and, and uh, values uh, of the network? What do you, what have you, what have you put out there? You want me to just read them to you? Sure. Okay. The, um, the mission statement is, to draw from personal experience as a seasoned healthcare professionals and helicopter crash survivors to provide a support network, education, and resources to air and surface medical organizations, personnel, and their families, and to facilitate collaboration within the air and surface medical communities 
to mitigate industry risk and aid in individual and organizational post-incident and accident recovery. Mm-hmm. So that's the mission. Um, and our goal is that every individual has access to our services so as to assist in the prevention of negative long-term effects of stress and the promotion of healing and recovery for individuals and programs. And um, we have a list of values that, um, you know, it's kind of long. I'll read it if you'd like, but it can also be found online on our um, Facebook page. It's on fa- Okay, that, that's good. Yeah, but it's mostly about um, caring for caregivers in the, in the hair and surface medical transport community and accomplishing that with a proactive approach to safety by creating an open, collaborative, multidisciplinary approach on national and local levels that emphasizes education, awareness, communication, and information sharing. And then it goes on beyond that, but that's probably the the key point. Okay. And that is on your Facebook page, and I'll have that uh, in the show notes so people can get to it. Um, Great. You're also trying to raise awareness of the group and reaching out to other crash survivors. Um, how many crash survivors are there from air medical uh, accidents, and what percentage do you think you have reached so far? Um, we've actually uh, reached just a small percentage, even though our um, connections and Facebook numbers are climbing um, sometimes daily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just from 2001, uh, we've done a lot of uh, research and, and data collecting, and, you know, we've lost well over 100 crew members that have um, perished in accidents. And, you know, we're over quadrupling that in numbers of survivors. And that's just the ones that we know of. I mean, they, you know, I've been contacted uh, uh, recently by a young man that was in an accident in 1988 and carried a lot of the things that we're talking about right now to this day that just wasn't dealt with, so he just kind of buried it and walked away from the industry. So um, there's a lot of us out there. So, you know, we're just talking about 2001. So if you think about, you know, 30 years before that, um, what those numbers really could be um, could be um, great. So um, we know they're out there. We're getting contacted um fairly regularly by them, and um, glad that they finally have um, an area they feel like they're safe to um, let some of these emotions and feelings that sometimes, like I said, have been trapped for years out and feel comfortable with that. So um, it's been a really eye-opener that um, we've had people from the 80s even contact us, so it's, it's, it's really been a good thing. You, you have some estimates on the number that are out there, though, don't you? Um, for survivors? Yes. For yeah, Dr. Blumen actually has a bunch of um, statistics on that, and there were upwards of um, 300, nearly 400 survivors, um, I want to say, in the past decade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I want to say, I'm not sure if it's the last decade or the last two decades, but even still, you know, that's a lot of um, survivors, and we'd like to find them and just let them know we're here. And we don't, you know, profess to have all the answers, but we're certainly here to be a support if we can. Yeah, I was just amazed. I think one of you had told me that at AMTC, and I was just like, wow, I had no idea that there was uh, that many uh, people out there. Um, how, how do you... Well, def- like Teresa said, those are the only the ones we that we know of. Those right. are the only, the only the ones with NTSB numbers. I know that there are hundreds and hundreds out there without NTSB numbers, you know, just people that have been through incidents and maybe accidents that didn't get an NTSB number. So, 
Right, and then when you add surface, when you add surface too, um, oh, exactly, that, it's even a greater number. Um, yes. How how do you define a crash survivor? What is the definition? We actually, um, our question is probably more: How do you just define a survivor pertaining okay. to our survivors network? Um, and you, you definitely don't have to be in a crash to be a survivor. You know, um, it's very well documented that trauma trauma can be um, ob- obtained vicariously, and so uh, you know you can you can be traumatized by being in a program that's had an accident. You can be traumatized by you know, something that you see at work, uh, just the horrific nature of some of the the trauma and the illnesses that we take care of, you know, day to day. Um, you know, we basically feel like, and I'm sure that there are administrators who uh, would consider themselves survivors, managers, uh, you know, dispatchers, nurses, medics, EMTs, RTs, you know, it pretty much runs the gamut. And I think that anybody, anybody that feels like they're a survivor uh, is a survivor. So, um, and even if you don't, you just want to support the network. Um, it's definitely open to anybody. Right. So in other words, it's not the person that might've been in the helicopter, or the ambulance, it might've been the dispatcher on duty at the time at the, the manager there, the other crew members that were back well, at the base. It's kind, of, uh, yeah. it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, pain control is something that's in the forefront of medicine right now. And it's, uh, they define, pain is it's it's subjective and it's whatever the person person experiencing it says it is and it's very similar um to that you know if you feel like you're a survivor you're having you know some of these uh symptoms or feelings and you know come on in you're welcome yeah well that's great that you have that um open door hey, i guess I, I don't want you to name any individuals you know and i know you went from a confidentiality um but has it been difficult for some crash survivors um, uh, to talk to you? Have you reached out to some people and have they, you know, don't want to talk, they've repressed and just don't want to deal with those feelings? I don't know about you know, that. Just a matter of timing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think they um, they search us out and it's, it's their comfort level that um, we support them. I mean, some are very open and very willing to put their story out there and others that they just need that support, but they really don't want it public. And um, so we try to just respect that. So we get different, you know, layers of that onion. Um, we've had family members contact us that maybe mm-hmm. their, their um, loved one is doing well post-accident, but they're not. So it's it's been various different people in you know, various um, recovery um, that get a hold of us and have different reasons for doing so. So we just try to respect each level and, and try to um, answer and support as we can. Right. Do you actively try to, as you say, pay it forward and, and reach out to people that you know are crash survivors or um, have people contacted you or, or both, I guess? I would like um, to say both. 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 Yeah. Okay. I and mean, we try. We don't want to, um, you know, we just, we just, we just offer it up. We're not here to, you know, kind of cram it down anybody's throat. It's right. just, we just want to make sure that they know that it's available if they're interested. And we also, 
you know, we, we'd like feedback from people. We'd like to know, um, you know, from people what they would like to see, um, what would be helpful. And, you know, that's pretty much we're looking for feedback from anybody and everybody on these topics. So, you know, we're not, like I said, we don't profess to have all the answers, but we're here to kind of open up the conversation and um, hopefully involve as many people as possible. So if there's a listener right now that's listening to the, the podcast and they, you know, are a survivor, you don't know about them, they want to contact you. I mean, how do they do that? Is it off the uh, Facebook page? Is there a phone number there too that they call? Or how do you guys split up the calls? Or is one of you on call? We we actually have a uh, email address Mm-hmm. That uh, pretty sure it's on the Facebook page, but it's um, survivors underscore ASMT at Yahoo. So that um, it's something that anybody that way it's not doesn't have to be posted anywhere. People can just send private messages to us. Yep, and that that is on your on the site. And some of the folks have you seen that you know it's just been an absolute relief to be able to finally talk to someone. Um, we've we've been told by some people that they, you know, that yes, they have found, uh, you know, talking with us or sharing stuff with us helpful. Um, and, you know, even if this op- opens up conversations within flight programs themselves, you know, between people there, and, you know, that's, that's part of our goal as well. Um, we're, you know, we're not counselors, we're not psychologists. Um, but we're here to kind of, what we're trying to do is kind of set up education and resources. We're, you know, we're not going to be, you know, all of the education and all the resources. We're hoping to get, you know, some professional people in, in each of those fields um, to help us out because, uh, you know, we want to basically be a place where people can come and find the help that they need um, and share their story if they like. Um, but we want to also make clear that, you know, we're not professionals. Right. And uh, in that, we're just professionals in our own experiences, and we're here to listen if they like. But sometimes or, just uh, that peer-to-peer is real important yeah, to get the yeah. ball rolling. Yeah, right. yeah. Exactly. Walk a mile in your shoes and um, yeah. kind of a facilitator role. How, how did you yeah. all um, meet up with Jonathan then? Hey, Megan kind of started that part, mm-hmm. didn't you? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, actually an AMTC this year. I, I had talked to him on the phone several times before AMTC um, and actually met with him this summer. But um, it was it was kind of uh, took hold and we really kind of went forward from AMTC. I see. Okay. Because I know he's been quite active and I heard too that uh, the three of you took him down to the site where he was taken out of the water on the Potomac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That must yep. have been yes. real important for him to have the support of the three of you there. Um, yeah. Have you reached out? Has this been primarily in the United States uh, that you're reaching out? Or have you had people from other countries that have been involved in crashes contact you? You know, there was a um, a survivor from a fixed-wing crash into the water off of Australia who um, oh, yeah. has joined the Survivors Network. And, and actually, I think Jonathan's been in, more, been in contact more with her than we have. But, um, you know, there may be people internationally that are um, 
have joined our, our Facebook page, but you know, we don't we don't really have a way to know who they are, I don't think, at this point. Right. But it's it's open to really anybody in the world. Oh absolutely. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Right. And um this is not just about medical crew either. I mean, it's also you've tried to reach out to uh, uh, pilots also, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The um, we've talked about your Facebook page. That's your main uh, way of of getting things out. And I see that you do have a username. So um, those that are listening, just because you're not on Facebook, you can still see this page um, because Facebook pages are uh, publicly viewable, so it's like a website. Um, are you also looking at other ways to uh, reach out? Are you looking at a, a website or any type of um, educational event of any kind? We are. We're looking at developing a website that will have... Um you know, uh, sort of more uh, private ways to, um, you know, get in touch with us and share stories Mm -hmm. um, that will hopefully have some education and resources and ideas um, for people in programs. And then um, I think just speaking at AMTC, and we've been invited to speak at several other medical programs um, across the country, um, just helps to raise the awareness. And then, you know, if people have ideas that they want to share, you know, we are absolutely more than willing to look at, at, you know, other ideas and, and kind of see where to go from there. Okay. You all have given speeches at AMTC and San Jose uh, last October and also at the Ames mid-year in March. Uh, how has this helped you reach out to others in the community? And, and uh, were any of you, did any of you have, you know, public speaking experience were you, were you nervous the first time you've you did this yes <laughs> no public <laughs> other than teaching classes yeah that was that's definitely probably a, a uh, understatement of sorts i mean I, I think i finally had to convince myself i think i was more fearful of knowing that this message needed to get out and not doing something about it and dealing with that the rest of my life and dealing with I got to get up in front of, you know, 200 people right. and say I have feel about something that's very personal. So, you know, um, the message became more important, so that helped me tremendously. Um, the other thing that I'd have to say that really helped me in this whole recovery process is the reception we got. I mean, it was overwhelming. And um, after we did AMTC, we went to Air Life Denver. Uh, we were asked to come and speak at their safety day, which was oh. just really a, a huge, great experience. And not only that for me um, to go out there and, and share on their safety day, but uh, my pilot, Richard, that was in the accident with me, I hadn't seen him since the accident, and we're very good friends, and um, he was able to come and attend that. And I think that was really important, not only for me, for um, a healing process, but to let um, that organization or others see that, um, you know, Richard and I are very tight. We're very close friends. He experienced that accident along with me, and I don't hold any ill will against Richard. He's a fabulous pilot. You know, I think we need to keep in mind here that, um, yes, while a lot of the accidents, sometimes the NTSB comes back with the fact that it's a pilot error, um, we're never going to take the human factor out of what we do. I mean, we can make a medical error. And right, it's right. more important to note that 
uh, when that error was made, he still saved my life. I mean, he still did, did what he was trained to do and uh, recovered well, and we're all walking and talking because of it. And uh, the big thing that he helped me realize that he was very honest with me on what happened. Um, I also recognized the fact that he was carrying the pain of not of knowing that because of um, an error, you know, he put us in harm's way. And, you know, I couldn't bring myself to think that, you know, I wanted to make that any worse for him. And, you know, when you, you look at recovery of um, PTSD, a lot of it's forgiveness. And if yes. people can't get past that, they never can move on to really heal from it. And um, that's something he gave me. You know, he totally was honest with me up front. We got past it, and we're very dear friends. And truth be known, I'd fly with him again. So I think it's really important out there for the pilots to know that we're there for them too. This is um, a crew support system, and and that includes everybody. So, you know, um, that was really, out of everything we've done so far, that was a real, um, you know, moment for me is knowing that he was out in the audience listening to our lecture and was there to support me. So um, that was a really big moment for me. So, Right. Was it a little bit different? You know, the, the mid-year tends to be more management staff. Was uh, uh, that a little bit different in how you prepared for that or the reception that you got? Um. You know, I think the, you know, and I don't want to talk for all of us, but I think at AMTC when we first went out there, we had no idea what to really anticipate or expect. You know, I think we went with the thought of awareness, just getting the message out there and and letting everybody know there's a lot of us out there. And the industry kind of, you know, absorbed that and, and took it to another level. And like Chris had said, we've been helped by several individuals to kind of catapult it. And at Ames, you know, it was a whole different focus, too, because it was a management level and talking and trying to get feedback on, on how we can approach this um, and help um, support our crews from a management perspective. You know, safety days are even different yet in that it's more personalized, it's about their yeah. organization, what can we learn. So, you know, there's been several different layers of um, how we've been received and even down to what Krista mentioned earlier, you know, people that contact us on our Facebook page, that it's about them. It's That moment's about them and, and it's a personalized message and, and what they're going through. So, um, you know, I don't know if that really answers the question, but there's just several different layers of what this uh, process means to several different people. Um, so, Well, I, I uh, was not at the mid-year this year, but I heard uh, that you just made an incredible impact. And I know um, uh, I interviewed uh, you know, Dr. Hutton uh, in the last episode um, and he, with the medevac, about the Medevac Foundation International, and there was uh, an immediate announcement by him that they are setting up a fund uh, for the Crash Survivors Network. Yeah, another uh, aha moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was a big one. I mean, he even said, you know, I went out in front of anybody hadn't talked to the board and said, you know, we've got to do this. And so that was great. I really um, thanked him for that, uh, for stepping up to the plate. Um, yeah, we definitely appreciate his support, too. Yeah. Well, yeah. well it's nice to get some funding, uh, too, behind what you're doing. Um, you're scheduled to speak again at AMTC uh, this year, which is wonderful. Um, I am assuming you having kind of a similar topic, but what's changing now that you've, you know, 
got the word out and you're maybe massaging the the message what uh have you have what do you have planned or you're still in in uh, the process of doing that since that's a ways off still you know it will be a very similar topic only we're going to be adding more voices um and that mm-hmm. we're going to have a panel and we'll be adding hopefully at least one pilot if not two um that have been in accidents and also um uh, another crash survivor who has expressed to us, you know, how he's benefited from the existence of the Survivors Network. Um, and then, you know, hopefully we'd like to add um, an administrator, a manager um, as well, just to make sure that we can get, you know, a, a well-rounded conversation. Uh, and, um, you know, we'll have to try to set the context, I think, because not everybody has heard our heard our talk um, and then go from there. So, yeah, we still are in the planning stages right. as well. Well, that's, that's wonderful that you'll be back. Well, I know that I've kept you uh, way over what we had uh, scheduled, but uh, I, I could talk another hour or more because um, you guys have such a great message. But is there anything else that uh, maybe we didn't cover that you'd like to say before we end up? Gosh, I think we covered, uh, we definitely covered a lot, but you're right. I mean, we could talk all day about this kind of thing. And, um, you know, I hope that, that people just stop and step back and kind of open their minds a little bit to uh, the impact that these jobs have on them and their families and um, just kind of join us in making people aware because I think that there can be a balance between, you know, good health and being a dedicated EMS professional. Um, but, you know, it has to be looked at and acknowledged. So we just hope people will take a minute and listen and uh, join us in our efforts. Yeah. Well, Megan, Krista, Teresa, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and thanks also for all your time and effort in assisting other survivors and and teaching all of us uh, what the needs are. Um, the Really, the whole air medical community appreciates what you're doing and reaching out and supporting, and uh, this really has been an untold story, and I, I do hope the, the podcast helps you get that message out. We appreciate Thank you, so you much, letting us to... Thank you. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. I will be taking off next week as I will be attending my son Alex's college graduation from James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I decided to take some time to drive there and back from here in Overland Park, Kansas. The next podcast will be on May 14th. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.